black and white, hot and cold, young and old, lazy and ambitious, clean and filthy, light and darkness, love and hate. We recognize these as statements that are contrasting. And a contrast is anything that is in a state of being strikingly different from something else in, listen here, close association. Recently, we had some interior designers come in, and uh, they came just a number of months ago, and we had them look at the foyer, and we had them look at the worship center. And in doing so, they noticed a lack of contrast in the colors of our building. They pointed out that the brick and the woodwork had such similar tones that each of them individually could not be appreciated for their architectural intention. The recommendation was to create contrast by changing the color of the brick, thus drawing more attention to the beauty of the woodwork. In essence, creating a contrast uh, brought what was always right here in our midst, right, this beautiful woodwork that we have to our attention. One of the longtime members of the church, um, after getting over the shock of coming in and seeing the brick a different color, said this, that the changes made it, uh, made it feel brighter, made it feel bigger, it made it feel cleaner, and it made it feel more modern were all things that came from their mouth. And whether they meant to or not, the member was noticing a striking difference between things that were closely associated. Last week it looked like it had always looked, and now it looks the way it looks today. Saying that it felt bigger contrasts the reality that before it felt what? Smaller. Saying that it felt cleaner is in contrast to feeling dirty. Saying that it felt more modern is in contrast to feeling outdated. And finally, saying that it felt brighter stood in direct contrast and does to feeling darker. There is perhaps no greater contrast drawn in the scriptures which define a person's spiritual condition than the contrast between darkness and light. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10, it is written, who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? It's a rhetorical question, is it not? It is not possible to say that you are in the light and yet walk in darkness. In addition, contrast is used to cast a woe on those who change what God has said from darkness to light. Isaiah again said in chapter 5 verse 20, the Lord says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Darkness is also used to describe what we understand to be the current condition of humanity without Christ. That is the world's condition. Everyone who is born is born in darkness. The Holy Spirit carried Isaiah along prophesying the future coming of Jesus in Isaiah 9. We often think of that in this month to come. Verse 2 saying this, The people who walk in darkness will, future tense, see a great light. 
Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The Apostle John picks up on Isaiah's prophesying in the beginning of his gospel. We have read it many times, and we will probably return to it many times as we go through 1 John. But in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he picks up this this, uh, reality, this prophecy of seeing a great light. And he says this, of Jesus, in him was life. And the life was the what? Light of men. And the light, that is Jesus, shines in the darkness, specifically in Israel at the time. And the darkness, what? Did not comprehend it. Friends, we've been journeying through 1 John, and we have come to chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. The title of today's message is Love and Hate. I really wanted to title it something like light and love and hate and darkness, and I couldn't make that sound good, so Troy helped me out by creating uh, what you see on the screen along with my wife, light and darkness with love and hate in there. Effectively, the Holy Spirit is revealing through John that the genuine Christian will be known for unconditionally loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. Where John and his brother James had become known, if you'll remember, as sons of thunder, we understand that uh, they were maybe self-righteous as they followed Jesus along and they're passing, remember, through Samaria, uh, which is not too far, really, from Elijah and uh, where he called down fire, if you remember, on Mount Carmel. And so they're in the region or similar region to this, and Jesus has gone through, and they have rejected Jesus' word. And I think probably in light of the fact that John and James, those two brothers, are in this region, and these people were rejecting God, they, they have this idea that, Lord, <laughs> should we just call down fire on these people and we'll just burn them all up. (laughs) You remember the story at Mount Carmel. Well, this is John who is now writing, and rather than calling down fire, he has now had years of walking in the light with the indwelling Holy Spirit convicting him and softening his heart. Praise God, right? I know my wife could tell you uh, stories of when we were first married, and I first believed, and how I was much harder in my life in those years than I am 23 years later as the Spirit of God has worked on my gentleness, convicting me of the sin that is in. And we see John now, 60-some years after desiring to call down fire on people. And we see him use this first word in our text today, beloved. He starts this new thought by using a similar word to that which we saw for the first time in his letter, or in this letter last week, found in verse 5. The word is one that is familiar to us. We hear a lot about it in Christian circles. It's the word agape, translated love. The word he starts, however, in verse 7, is agape toy. It is from agape toss in the singular, but a toy is the plural, and it is translated beloved. And it means one who is dearly loved. This love is undoubtedly 
love that John personally has for the church. No doubt if you have spent any time in ministry, even your family, and pouring out into people that you love, you have deep affection for them. And John is certainly identifying with that affection and and saying, beloved. But it also indicates that John is writing those who had received the special love of God in Christ Jesus. They were believers. We'll see that. And I hope that you will take your pen or your marker some way and underline in your Bibles every time John refers to these who seem to be in opposition as brothers, not unbelievers. John, in his great compassion, writes, Beloved. We understand this, don't we? When we uh, receive a letter just recently, I received a card from a family member we had, as some of you know, had gone through a death in the family, an untimely death. Uh, in October, and had the opportunity to serve in that the particular funeral, and recently received a car uh, a card, and and I just it was endearing uh, from the person who it was from. It was a cousin of mine, and they started with "Dear Carl." I don't know. They could have just said "Carl." We're we're peers. We're friends. We're <laughs> close. But in this particular situation, it was important for her in particular to reflect to me, dear Carl. The word agape toy is used 62 times in the New Testament. Ten of those are found in John's writings. So John starts, beloved. You might have it translated or you could translate it, dearly beloved. My dear ones or my dear friends. I am not writing a new commandment to you, but, and you could place in there, I am writing an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. You have heard. John is reminding the church, the beloved, in this case, of the commandment that they received at the beginning of their new life in Christ. Many of you know that we have changed uh, our, what we call and what we have traditionally called Sunday school, although I think it communicates the same thing. But that hour, we are calling it discipleship hour. We are doing that to contrast maybe some of the complacency we get at calling it Sunday school, like I'll get around to learning something, to discipleship classes. We want to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, and therefore we need to look at these classes as a way that are growing, learning, challenging us to learn right now specifically the gospel so that we understand it well, that we might reach the world. So John is reaching back and he is telling them, you have already been commanded this. You have already been taught this, and I'm going to remind you of it. It is important for us to keep in mind, as I've already said, that John is writing to professed Christians who are dealing with false teachers that had cropped up, and they are ultimately dividing the church over some teaching. John is speaking to them that which they had, past tense, already been taught from the beginning. The commandment they have had is also the word, past tense, they have heard. Some might point to the Old Testament here and say that this is a reference to the law, but it is perhaps just as well to be understood as the commandment 
that Jesus gave at the Last Supper to love one another. Remember with me, if you will, the scene in that upper room. The tensions in Jerusalem are extremely high. The twelve have gathered along with Jesus. The week has been full of apprehensions, remember, starting with Palm Sunday. Their uproar of a king that is coming into the city. The religious leaders not knowing what to do about that king coming into the city as the the people uh, are expecting and treating him as the new king. Of course, that's got Rome at high attention as they don't want any kind of insurrection and they certainly don't want anything like this happening at the Passover when millions of Jewish believers have shown up in Jerusalem. Remember then that Jesus spent two days, Monday and Tuesday, refuting and essentially saying, woe to you, religious leaders, right? You are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look like you got it all together, but on the inside, you are dead. Wednesday, we believe to be silent, and Thursday, we read of the Galilean Passover. These 13 men show up in the upper room washing their feet, Jesus does. He teaches them once again in that washing that the greatest among them will be the servant of all. He mentions to them that not all of them are clean. And a few verses later, he mentions that one of you will betray me. That threw the twelve into a frenzy, asking the Lord, is it me? Peter, if you can imagine, I love reading these stories, leans over and probably elbows John and who's sitting next to Jesus and says, hey, ask him who in the world he's talking about, right? I don't know if you guys enjoy reading these stories and, and uh, just imagining what does this scene look like and everybody's going, well, is it me? Am I going to betray him? And Peter, you know, right? He's, he's always got his shoe in his mouth. And uh, he's like, hey, ask the Lord, who is it going to be, John? So John asks, you remember, and Jesus tells John, the one whom I give this bread. Hang in there. Give me just a moment here. This is tenuous context. And this old command that was new, and it, uh, uh, it has much to do with the rest of our instructions for today. So the tension is high. They don't know who is doing what. We, the Lord has said that there is somebody that is going to betray, and he reaches over. He gives Judas, who is sitting in a place of honor, the first bite of this food. He tells Judas to go and do what you have to do quickly. The record records that the others did not know what's going on. After he leaves, Jesus says this in John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Jesus had said this knowing that Judas has gone to betray him. The other 11 have witnessed Jesus' washing of Judas' feet, the They uh, saw that Judas had been given a place of honor next to him at the table. They, They knew all those things, but they did not know what was going on with Judas. No doubt at some point later in time, 
the apostles come back together and they begin to ponder this commandment, this new commandment that had been given them to love one another as Jesus had loved them. It didn't have its fullness and the fact that they still were a little confused about the fact that he is going to die is certainly in the next 24 hours. And he had washed Judas's feet and he had fed Judas and he had given Judas this place at the table. And then he gives this command to love people like that. Let that sink in. For the new Christian who is being uh, uh, born again, they are being taught in some discipleship class, right? To follow Jesus means to lay down your life for people who hate you, people who call you their enemies. So it is that the old commandment to love one another as Jesus had loved them was new to the Apostle John during the, the Jesus' time, but old in respect to what the church had been taught concerning loving one another. So John says this, on the other hand, or it's translated again or yet, depending on your translation, I am writing a new commandment to you. This seems to be contradictory, but the word uh, beginning uh, or being translated, excuse me, new, is the Greek word kainen. Kainen, and it refers not to new in time, but rather newness in quality. If John was meaning to say something completely new, he would have used the word naos, which comes and describes uh, something that is brand new that did not exist before. So John says that this newness in quality is, look there, true in him, that is Christ, and in you. And how do we know that the command to love one another as Christ had loved was working? Look there, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, beloved. It's a funny thing about light, is it not? If we could black out this worship center right now, and we often talk about things being dark as the inside of a cow, and you had one little pin of light, it would push back the darkness and everybody would have a point of reference and be able to go to it. Jesus coming into a dark world was inaugurating the light of eternal life. And all of us who have since believed in him carry on that torch of eternal light and life to a dark world. I had a seminary professor who was teaching ecclesiology, he's teaching on the church, and he liked to describe a doctrinally sound church and a community like being a lighthouse inside the city. A lighthouse in a dark world. I don't know what it was about that example, but it really stuck with me, and it really helped me as I was thinking about being a pastor and leading a church, and my desire to lead a church that would not just be a lighthouse during my days, unlike Hezekiah, I wanted to see in our midst a church be built where the next generation is being raised up and trained to be a light to continue on when we are gone. And it is so important that we understand that these churches, our church, we desire it to be a lighthouse in our community, not just now, but forevermore for your kids and their kids if the Lord tarries. It's important for a community to have light, something to be drawn to. In 2010, Valerie and I took a vacation, 
It's one of the few times in our lives where we had both money and time. You guys ever, seems like you either have time and no money or money and no time. In 2010, we had those two things conjoined together and and, uh, we took a vacation to Belize. And uh, I don't know what it is about our vacations, but our vacations always seem to have some kind of odd travesty that goes on. Uh, maybe it reminds us not to take too many vacations. I don't know, but we had arrived at Belize, and we were on this little boat, and we were riding down along these beautiful beaches and and coastlines, and we noticed all these people were grabbing hold of their boats with tractors, and they were pulling them up onto their beaches, and we just thought, well, I guess maybe this is what they do every night. I don't know. I don't live on the uh, ocean. I don't understand tides and those types of things. So I just assumed it was normal. When we arrived at our destination, we found out that uh, the first, what would be hurricane of the year was approaching Belize. It was uh, uh, a tropical storm at the time, Alex. And it messed up our whole thing. And we spent a lot of time inside our hotel room and I had desired to go fishing, and in that, uh, uh, in that fishing, I was so excited to be out on these beautiful, clear waters. People come all over the world to Belize to scuba dive and look at all the fish and, and enjoy the water, but the water, of course, after the storm was like chocolate milk, <laughs> just muddy. Well, a couple days went by, and the guides that I wanted to fish with I thought, well, maybe we could go fishing somewhere, but we're going to have to leave really early in the morning, and so I uh, got up, and it was still dark, and went out onto these little fiberglass boats that they call pangas, and I was sitting on this boat and kind of disoriented. It was very dark out still, and we were just going on this water, and I, I didn't have a clue where in the world we're going, and I couldn't help but think, how does this guy know where we're going? <laughs> and I just have no idea. Well, pretty soon, I began to realize that right on the horizon... Uh, was just a little light, and it was a lighthouse. And we went for quite some time, and just about the time that you passed one of those lights, you could see the next light. And so I turned and I asked the guy, I said, are, are you just following those lights? Because I really couldn't tell whether or not there was land there or it was water or anything. And he said, yeah, it's designed that way that as soon as you get to one, you can see the next one, and it keeps you from running aground and all these other things. Ultimately, we had been guided that morning in the dark by these lighthouses that were spread out at a perfect distance. I've often thought about the church being a lighthouse in our city and wondered if we could just turn all the sources of light off, whether or not we would have enough light in our city to be guided. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Chapter, four, or chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, of those who would follow him, that you are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and, he gives, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Here comes the command, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and do what? Not glorify you, but glorify your Father who is in heaven. The Holy Spirit is affirming here uh, through John that since the command to love as Jesus had loved, 
was given. Darkness is passing away and light is shining. It is shining in every human being that has the Spirit of God living and dwelling in their life. And he is saying, let your light shine. Don't put it under a basket. Don't let it go out. And John is saying, since the time that we have followed this command to love one another, that light, if you be doing so, is going out. Here comes the contrast. If what John has said seems a little esoteric at this point, it was old, it was new, what is it? Now he's going to make it clear. He's going to create a contrast of moral actions calling darkness hate and light love. John takes out his paintbrush, so to say, kind of like Jeff did in the last few weeks, and he begins to paint a contrast between love and hate. One commentator said that following uh, the following verses, quote, John uh, will affirm that loving one's brother demonstrates that one has a healthy relationship, is in fellowship with God. Essentially, the Holy Spirit says that an absence of love for other Christians invalidates a person's claim to have fellowship with the Creator. What is John saying? He's saying that in the church, there should be such great love. It should be recognized. It should stick out. We should love each other. We should be sacrificing for each other. We should be preconceiving that each other are going to sin, to have problems, and that it could potentially cause problems, but the church would be known because of its love, its willingness to forgive, its willingness to wash the feet of Judas, its willingness to give him the right place at the table, its willingness to hand him that morsel of bread, even though he knew Judas would betray him. Beloved, the idea is this, since Christ commanded his followers in the context of being betrayed by one of his closest followers to love one another in the same way, then the one who divides the church by hating or destroying or detesting another Christian is in the darkness. It is quite possible that what we are seeing in 1 John here is a record anyway of the first church split that has been recorded. If you've ever been caught up in one, it is an experience that you will not soon forget. People often take sides and lines are drawn in the sand over issues going on inside of the church. And at best, it's over issues of doctrine, which that is what is clearly going on here in 1 John. But it is hurtful, it is painful. People you know and love, like brothers and sisters, take up sides. If this be so, that this is what is going on here uh, in the church, in and around Ephesus, then there are those who are diverging from the fellowship of the apostles' doctrine by believing in some form of Greek dualism. All the while, they are still claiming to be Christians. These who are leaving fellowship with the apostles and are leaving fellowship then with the Father and the Son, as we learned in the first four verses of chapter 1. They are hating, they are despising the true Christians, and therefore John is saying that they are currently in the darkness, yet he calls them brothers. 
Friends, the contrast couldn't be any clearer. To despise or to hate someone is to assume the position of a judge and to judge another guilty of their sin. The sense that we get from the word agapao, this loving, is that we should unconditionally love people. Sometimes I think we go by that word too quickly, unconditionally. Like Jesus, we should love those who hate us. To do this, we as believers will have to preconceive, right? Loving those Judases in our life. Not because they deserve it, but rather because doing so is a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do so, we will have abided in the light. We will have been an ambassador for the king. But as John says in verse 11, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I mentioned this last week um, that I uh, will bring a little bit more detail today. And I mentioned that um, I was deployed to um, close to Vietnam there. And we were in, uh, in Thailand specifically and we were working with the Thai Special Forces, and uh, we would often do everything that we did at night, and I had never experienced darkness the way I had experienced this one evening where we got lost in the jungle. We were completely disoriented. We were blinded, so to say, by the darkness of the night. The canopy, the cover was so thick that there was no alum. Our, our night vision goggles, just if you've ever looked through a pair, I don't know how they are now. They're probably much better than they were then. But they were just green. That's the way it looked. It was just kind of a green film. You couldn't make out anything because it was so dark. And we were trying to move through this jungle, and we were lost. We were disoriented. The GPSs that we had wouldn't work for the same reason. Again, it was back in the early 90s. The technology wasn't as good, and, and it could not reach through the canopy. And we were just flat out lost. <laughs> it was black as you can even imagine. And the only way that we could stay in line and not lose track of each other in that jungle was on the back of each one of our hats were what we called cat eyes. And the cat eyes were, were set up in different kinds of patterns that identified different companies from other companies. And, and so when it was so dark, all you could do was, was to do everything you could in a disoriented way to kind of feel your way forward with your feet, hoping that you didn't fall off something, run into something. And you wanted to keep your eyes on these two little lights that were in front of you on the back of the man in front of you's hat. To lose those lights was to be completely blinded. It was to be in complete darkness. It was to lose track of all leadership, all direction, all function. Well, it happened to me. I don't know what happened. I still don't know what happened. But the group began to break up, and I think... People began to panic a little bit because they couldn't see the guy in front of them whatsoever. I lost the man in front of me. I could hear people moving around, but I didn't know if they had fallen off a cliff. <laughs> they very well could have. Or they'd taken a hard left or right. The darkness had completely blinded my eyes. 
Ultimately, we had to turn on some flashlights that had uh, red filters on them and figure out and regroup and let some of that light push back the darkness. Friends, I cannot point this out enough. John is speaking of unbelievers, uh, of uh, is not, excuse me, speaking of unbelievers. He is speaking directly to brothers in Christ. This can happen to us, and in as much as we were on one team and we were trying to do everything in unison, the darkness had blinded our eyes and began to break us up and split us up, and it can happen. And we have to return to this idea that I am committed to love my brother regardless if their sin is driving division between him and I or her and I. I must be committed to putting one foot in front of the other until we can see clearly in the light. As we consider these verses and wrap up for today, I want us to ask ourselves how we are doing with others in the faith. Maybe you're here as a result of some kind of church split, or maybe you're here today and uh, you have just been so frustrated or broken by some of the things that have happened in the church that you have just kind of got lost in the darkness. And you, I don't want to serve. I don't want to get engaged. I, uh, I know that the more I engage, the more chance is that something bad is going to happen and it's going to break my heart, so I'll just sit in the background. That's a level of darkness from the division that goes on inside of the church. And I encourage you to call it what it is. And return to the battle. Turn on your light. Turn on your flashlight. Reorient yourself to your friends and your family and know that they'll probably do it again. But just like Judas, will you wash their feet? Will you feed them bread? Will you love them regardless? So if that's you this morning, I just want to encourage you to re-engage. Get back in. Confess your sin to your heavenly Father. He already knows it anyway. Secondly, I would encourage you to take time to deal with whoever you are at odds with. There is nothing like a root of bitterness that will stunt your growth in intimacy with the Lord. There is something about, right, holding on to sin, holding on to that. It's like building a wall around your heart, and it it doles the Word of God and, and how He speaks and uses our pastors and our friends and our church body, just get it done. Go sit down with that person. Do not let it continue on. Those types of things are what get you disoriented in the jungle. Without fail, I have never felt worse than when I was holding on to ill will towards somebody else in the faith. And without fail, I have never felt so exhilarated as when I just went and spoke to them. And beloved, I can just tell you, so many times when I have just got up the courage to go and talk to somebody about something I thought was going on, I figured out that's not what they were doing in the first place. It was just my own perception. I had missed it. I had misunderstood something they said, something they did. All of a sudden, the light comes on, and I, I've got my brother back. <laughs> and sometimes it's not been. Sometimes they've looked at me, and they have said, yeah. You really made me mad, and I really don't want anything to do with you. That's okay. Romans 12 would tell us to, to, to do everything we can to be at peace with all men. You've done your part. Amen? Don't get lost in the darkness. 
Don't let the darkness blind your eyes. Maybe you're here this morning and all this is going right over your head. The idea of forgiving one another is absolutely foreign to you. You might be asking, why in the world would I ever forgive anybody? Well, let me just say that forgiveness is at the core of all of Christianity. As Christians, we have realized that we deserve God's coming wrath on our very personal sin. We also understand that Christ offered himself in our stead so that anyone who would believe in him would have eternal life. The writer of this letter, John, a friend of Jesus's, recorded these words in John 3, 16 through 18. We're very familiar with 16, unfortunately unfamiliar with the two verses that follow. But listen here, if you don't know why we would forgive this morning, John wrote this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now pay attention here, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It's like a life preserver, God throughout in a world that is going to die. In verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God has already judged our sin. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior, it's not, because, it's not that you're choosing hell Hell has been chosen. It is where you're already headed. God sent the life preserver of Jesus Christ into the world and says he has already judged it. He judged it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Don't eat that tree or you will die. And this is the life we live. The life of a Christian is recognizing there is going to be sin in our midst. We're going to live amongst Sinners in a dark world, darkness will creep into the church and people will get deceived and brokenhearted and lost and they will not uh, be able to find their way and we will want to come along them like brothers and turn on a light, encourage them to come back, don't stumble. There could be no greater contrast than light and darkness. I began this sermon speaking of those contrasts and the contrast is anything that is in a state of being strikingly different from something else in close association. If we believe that Christ died for his enemies, then listen here, love died for hate. Light died for darkness and holiness died for sinners. It is this principle that John is reminding us of here that all these years later that loving like Christ, love the church, is walking in the light. Holding on to hate is walking in the darkness and it will cause us to stumble. Beloved, the Holy Spirit is revealing through John that the genuine Christian will be known for unconditionally loving their brothers and sisters. Unconditionally. We've got to get it in our hearts. We've got to get it in our minds. We're going to get hurt. People are going to get lost. I'm going to get lost. I need somebody to come alongside of me. You will need somebody to come alongside of you. 
And we will all do this together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning and your word, Lord. I thank you for its practicality and how it pierces into all that we have going on, and it really covers every subject that we could ever imagine or address. I pray, Lord, for all that are here this morning, that there, if there is any unrepentant sin in, in their lives, Lord, if they have been holding on to some form of bitterness because of issues that have gone on in the church, that, God, that you would give them and grant them repentance and the ability, Lord, to, to return to those churches, to return to those people, to forgive where they need to forgive. I pray, Lord, that they would have wisdom in doing so. It may be, very well be that those others don't even know, Lord, what they have done. But help us, Lord, to walk in the light that we might be as effective and as a bright of a house, as a city on a hill that we could possibly be right here in Cheyenne, Lord, that people would truly know us, Father, because we have followed the command to love others the way that you loved us. Help us, Lord, now in these things. We'll give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.